developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Lynn and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today visiting with us is Dr. Nicole Avina. Dr. Avina is truly an amazing person as you'll quickly see her power, creativity, and influencing abilities. Today we're going to talk about the dangers of added sugar, how to avoid sugar addiction, and her new book, Sugarless. But uh, let's first learn a little bit about Dr. Avina. She's led a very impressive and adventurous life. Dr. Nicole Avina is an associate professor of neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City and a visiting professor of health psychology at Princeton University. She's a research neuroscientist and expert in the field of nutrition, diet, and addiction with a special focus on nutrition, during early life and pregnancy and women's health. She has done groundbreaking work developing models to characterize food food addition and the dangers of excess sugar intake. Her research achievements have been honored by awards from a number of groups, including the New York Academy of Science, the American Psychological Association, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. In addition to writing over 100 peer-reviewed scholarly publications, she's written a number of popular books, including Why Diets Fail, What to Eat When You're Pregnant, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, and her latest book, Sugarless, which covers the latest science on sugar addiction and how to overcome it. It will be released like this month, I believe, and she'll tell us more about that, 2023. And she also frequently appears as a science expert in the media, uh, made an appearance on Good Day New York, The Doctors, and the former Dr. Oz Show, and many other programs. She's been featured in Time Magazine, Bloomberg Business, New York Times, and on and on and on. She's also uh, the number two most watched TED Ed Health Talk, How Sugar Affects Your Brain, with over 17 million v- views and still counting. So I'm excited to have you with us. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight, Dr. Vina. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's great. I mean, this has been, I'm an eye doctor and a developmental optometrist, but so many of the patients I see who have learning issues, they've had brain injury, concussions, special needs, and as we're trying to rehab and give them new lives and rebuild their visual processing skills, so often and my concern about other areas of their life, especially being nutrition. And in our day and age, sugar 
is a number one concern. And so tell us about your research on sugar addiction. Well, yeah, before I jump into that, one thing that I think you've probably seen so much in your practice is the negative impact that sugar can have on our vision just through type 2 diabetes and undiagnosed type 1 diabetes, right? And so there's such a strong link between, you know, nutrition and eye health, and we're learning about the strong link between nutrition and brain health, nutrition and sleep health, and really nutrition plays such an important role in virtually all aspects of our health. That's why it's so important that we pay attention to it and make sure that we try to optimize it as best we can. And I got into... Okay. I wanted to just comment what you said about that. We're talking that, you know, absolute physical findings. Often optometrists are the first people that, that will help in the diagnosis of diabetes, like you mentioned. Yeah. That. And for our listeners, when we look inside your eyes and take pictures of the back of your eyes, often we'll see little blood hemorrhages that shouldn't be there. You know, the eyes are the one place we can actually see your blood vessels and seepage, and, and often it's... Uh, uh, diabetic related. We also have some patients that will come in and go, I can't see with these glasses and we'll find a brand new prescription. It's a pretty big change. We'll make that prescription. And by the time they come back to pick up their glasses, they'll put them on, they go, these don't work. And we check them out yeah. and they're a whole nother prescription. So yes, that's the, you know, that's a blatant indication of a problem with sugar uh, metabolism. Uh, but as you said, it impacts the rest of our body as well. So please continue on your research on that. Yeah. So I got interested in sugar addiction kind of serendipitously. I was starting graduate school at Princeton and I was in a lab that was studying motivated behavior. And when I initially met with my advisor, we were talking about what kind of project I would work on for my dissertation. And this is, you know, a big, long project. It's going to take five years, this massive amount of work. And so it has to be something that's interesting, right? It also has to be something that's kind of novel because you really can't spend all that much time on something that we already know everything about. So we were just throwing around ideas. And at the time, this is going back to the year 2000, 2001, there had been a lot of buzz in the media about the fact that the obesity rates were going up. And, you know, you might think, well, we know that, that people have been saying that to media for years, but this was really the beginning of it, where we really started to hear people reporting about the statistics and wondering, why are obesity rates going up? Like, what is happening? And so we started talking about how, you know, maybe it's not all about the person who's obese not being able to just have that self-control. Maybe there's more to it. And maybe it's about the types of foods that are in our food environment. Because if you take a look around, the majority of the foods in our food environment are highly processed. They have lots and lots of added sugar. And they're unlike anything else that we've ever seen in humankind. And so we're in this uncharted territory in terms of how are these foods going to impact us? And we really don't know what's going on. We're living in the experiment. And so we started wondering if maybe some of these foods that are so high in sugar and they're highly processed, that they could affect the brain and affect behavior in the way that drugs and alcohol can. Because we know that drugs and alcohol act on the brain and can overactivate the reward systems in the brain. And that's how they can make people get addicted to them. And we wondered if the same thing could be happening with many of these processed foods. 
So that's how it started. And really, it was a series of experiments over many, many years that, believe it or not, I'm still doing experiments in this uh, 20 years later, you know, just trying to understand, is sugar addictive? And the bottom line is, it is. And we've been able to show it time and time again, and lots and lots of other labs have replicated the studies and expanded on them. And so now the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? Ask you when you say sugar is addictive, um, will you explain to our audience how do you decide it's addictive or not? What are the clinical or medical kinds of indications of that? That's an important question because, you know, we use the term addiction pretty liberally, right? When we are just kind of talking amongst ourselves, people will say, oh, I'm addicted to this show on television or, oh, I'm addicted to, you know, this particular song. I can't stop listening to it. But when we're talking about addiction from a scientific perspective, we have very, very clear guidelines that we have to follow in order to say whether or not something is addictive or not or is prone to produce addiction. So we use the American Psychiatric Association's criteria for substance use disorder, which is another way of saying addiction. And so we have very clear criteria that need to be met in order to be diagnosed with having an addiction. And so those are the criteria that we've been looking at. And in the experiments that have been done, essentially, instead of morphine or nicotine or cocaine or alcohol as the drug, the drug that we've been using in our studies has been sugar. And we're able to find the same exact results when the substance is sugar instead of one of the more commonly known drugs of abuse. There's actual neurologic brain changes that you can measure through imaging and blood flow and things like that. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things that I think has really made this story more than just a story. I think when you're able to visualize these changes in the brain and show someone an image of a brain and say, here's the brain, here's the brain on sugar, Any questions? If you can, any of the listeners remember that you know old commercial from back in the 1980s when the um, person—it was an infomercial or an educational effort for keeping kids off of drugs—and the person would crack an egg into a frying pan and say, "This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions?" And that was burned into my brain because I was a kid in the 1980s and never right. do drugs, right? Because it'll fry your brain. Well, what happens is we're seeing essentially the same thing now where we can see an image of a person, of a brain of a person who's using drugs and an image of a person who is overweight or obese, has a highly rich diet of sugar, and the brains look identical. And beyond wow. that, we, we can look even deeper. We can see, you know, in response, to specific neurotransmitters. We can look at things like dopamine, the opioids in the brain, and be able to see that when consuming sugar, it can cause dopamine to be released in a way that looks like what you would see if it was drugs and abuse. But again, we're able to elicit these things simply with sugar. And can you translate then what are some of the behavioral characteristics? And I know it's quite variable uh, across for different people, but, you know, what kind of behavioral, we talked about the eye physical changes, but both the behavioral and physical physical changes that people have when uh, they have a sugar addiction. Well, one of the things that I think makes this so difficult to characterize for people 
is that we've normalized a lot of these behaviors. And so things like, for example, binging and tolerance, that's two of the criteria that are used to consider something as an addictive substance. So binging is when you consume more of it than you intend, and tolerance is when you escalate your intake in order to get the same pleasure or satisfaction that you used to get from smaller amounts of the substance. So if you think about things like alcohol, it's pretty clear to see, you know, when someone's binge drinking, right? Because they get intoxicated, they start to act stupid and, you know, they might hurt themselves or others. And it's also easy to see when someone becomes tolerant to alcohol because you can measure alcoholic beverages and say, well, I used to feel good when I had one glass of wine, but now I need to have three glasses of wine. So my tolerance has gone up. But with sugar, it's different because, you know, people don't get drunk on sugar, unfortunately, right? We have no mechanism to stop us is part of the problem. Um, and so people can binge on sugar and overconsume it, and they're not going to have that feedback that's going to prevent them from stopping to continuing on. And the thing with tolerance, we see that, you know, people who used to feel satisfied with maybe a small piece of cake suddenly feel that, you know, they need to have a much larger piece of cake. And so it goes on and on. And it's one of those things that makes it difficult for people to recognize in themselves and also recognize in others because it's been somewhat normalized to just, you know, have large portions, have, you know, access to these things and overconsume them ad libitum. And so that's mm -hmm. one of the things that I, I think can challenge individuals. Another criteria is withdrawal. And, you know, we tend to think about withdrawal like we think about heroin withdrawal or opiate withdrawal, which is a very particular type of withdrawal where people will, you know, be extremely ill and need to go to the hospital, be medicated to manage it. But we have to keep in mind that there are other forms of withdrawal, like nicotine withdrawal is similar, I would say, to what happens during sugar withdrawal, where it can be pretty mild. You might have a headache, you might be irritable, you might be lethargic, but it's something that, you know, is going to vary in intensity depending on the person's individual diet history. So those are a couple of the behavioral things that uh, we need to look out for. And I think just regarding the withdrawal, one last thing on that is that, a lot of times when people decide to cut sugar out of their diet or cut way back on it, they'll feel those withdrawal feelings, but they won't know it's withdrawal. They'll feel lethargic. They'll feel cranky. They'll feel tired and, you know, feel like they might have a headache. And they misattribute that to low blood sugar. And I've had so many people over the years say to me, I stopped having sugar, but my body reacted by my having my blood sugar plummet and I, I felt weak and I felt tired. And so I needed to eat sugar to bring it back up. But, it, you know, it isn't until you actually draw their blood sugar and show them that there's nothing wrong with their blood sugar, that it's actually the withdrawal that they're experiencing, that people have that aha moment where they say, oh, my goodness, you're right. This, this wasn't a physical effect of my body trying to correct it. It's my body actually just going through withdrawal. And that can be tough for some people. That's so interesting. Are, are there actually any studies that show the impact of sugar on like attention or hyperactivity? I mean, I, I have my own kids and I've seen kids in the practice that we just automatically say, well, they're on a sugar high without, without really knowing if that's true or not. 
It's so true. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about this a lot in my new book, Sugarless, about all the different behavioral conditions where sugar plays a role. And, you know, a lot of times, especially among young children, if they're having difficulty focusing, if they're not paying attention in school, if they're acting out, they get recommended to put their children on medications to cope with those behaviors. And for many children, yes, that might be required. But I also think the first step should be getting the sugar out of their diet because so many kids are acting in accordance with what the sugar is doing to their brain. If sugar is overacting your brain dopamine system and causing you to exhibit these addiction-like behaviors, guess what? You're not going to be able to focus. You're going to be acting out. You're going to be doing these things. So it makes complete sense if your diet is full of sugar that you're going to have some cognitive impairment going on. And that's exactly what the research is showing. There's so many studies that have now come out showing that sugar intake is linked to brain health, it's linked to cognitive health, it's linked to behavior focus. And those are all things that we can control to some degree by making changes in our diet. Interesting. So the big question is how much sugar, and I know it's quite variable, but you say take it out or cut it down or, you know, how do, how would parents know that because often the parents are probably addicted as well because if it's in the house everybody's eating usually that kind of a, di- a diet so how did it how does a parent even get started at looking and documenting it and then making a change that you know that's a whole story in itself how you make the change yeah well i think the first step is looking at it and i have this actually listed in my new book sugarless as one of the first steps really taking stock of what you got Because a lot of times people don't realize how much sugar they're consuming because it's hidden in a lot of the different foods that we eat, especially those that are marketed toward children. And so one of the tasks that I have for people to do is to really just go through your pantry, go through your refrigerator, take a look at what you have and not get rid of all the stuff with sugar in it, but make a list of what things have sugar in them and how much. So you can get a sense of what proportion of the things that we have in this home have added sugar? And then that way you can start to make some changes. And so let's just say, you know, you have your kid's favorite breakfast cereal has, you know, 12 grams of added sugar per serving. Well, let's see if we can go to the store and find a breakfast cereal that maybe has half that amount and work toward reducing it. It's not about, you know, cold turkey, cutting everything out, because we all know that that's not going to be sustainable. A better strategy is to work on reducing, reducing, reducing. And when you implement that, you can really start to see not only where the sugar is, but you can make these really easy swaps. And there's so many options out there for different products. And fortunately, we have a lot of products that are available now that are sugar-free, that have, you know, recognized that sugar is not good for our health. And companies have been reducing the sugar in many products, so there are options out there. So it's just a matter of figuring out where the sugar is hiding so that you can get it out or get it reduced as much as possible. And for our readers, because not all of them, there are a lot of astute parents, certainly, and people that can read labels, but a lot of people don't necessarily know what it means. What is a lot of sugar? You know, you said 12 uh, grams in, in your cereal. I mean, what would be a a high, moderate, low amount of added sugar? 
Well, just to put it into perspective, when you take a look at the nutrition facts label now, because it's been put into ruling over the past couple of years, all the food companies now need to put on the label how much percent of daily recommended value of added sugar is in the product. So that means that if you buy a pint of ice cream, it's going to have a percentage next to the sugar. So you'll know, okay, this is 50% of the recommended value of daily intake of sugar. So if I have just this one serving of ice cream, I'm eating half the amount of sugar I was supposed to have in the day. So we do have that information so that you can kind of gauge that, okay, if it's obviously 50% of your daily recommended value, it's probably not something that you want to have, you know, as a, a dessert, right? Because that's awful high. The recommendations for how much sugar we should be consuming each day, added sugar, are six to nine teaspoons a day. But the average American is consuming 17 teaspoons a day. So independent of body weight status and health status, the average American is consuming much more sugar than is recommended. So for cutoffs, I tend to tell people, whatever is lower than what you're consuming right now is best. Okay. I think, yeah. And I think, you know, when it comes to things like cereals, and again, it's going to depend on the ice cream side of things like, okay, yeah, it's going to obviously have more sugar in it than we like, but try to find one with less sugar. And then for things like cereals, you know, again, I like things that are six to seven grams of sugar. That to me, I think is, you know, a more reasonable amount. In addition to how much sugar it contains, you want to also look at what are the other ingredients? Because let's just say granola as one example. There are lots of different granola varieties out there. And if I find a granola that has maybe six or seven grams of sugar in it, that doesn't sound too bad. But if it also has ingredients that have a lot of fiber that are going to promote satiety and they're going to be good for our health, then I think it's a healthier choice, right? Because you're going to have that fiber to help mitigate the effect that the blood has on our blood sugar, and you're going to get all the nutrition from the other healthy ingredients that are included. So I think it's important to look at sugar, but I also think you have to look at it within the context of the other ingredients too. Right. That's great. Well, uh, Dr. Vina, we're going to take a break here in just a minute. When we get back, we're going to learn more about the sugar addiction that so many people around the world have. And so we'll see you in just a few minutes and take a break right now. Dr. Lynn will be right back after this. child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com.
developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is Dr. Lynn, and we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nicole Avina. Uh, she's truly an amazing uh, person who has worked with sugar addictions. She's done research and has also written some books. We're going to talk about her new book, Sugarless, in just a minute. But in the first half, you were talking about the impact of sugar on behavior, on cognitive, and we know physical impact as well. And you were just starting to talk about, you know, what is maybe an acceptable amount of sugar. And I even question, you know, the recommended allowance of sugar. Who creates that? And is it appropriate from your research? I, I know the American diet that's been recommended in my philosophy is often not at all appropriate for healthy living. So talk a little about, about you know, the recommended amount and, and does your research seem to support what the recommended amounts even are? And I know it'd be great if people even hit the recommended amounts, but is that even good enough? I'm so glad you asked this. And I think it's such an important question. It's it's a larger question than, than you're asking. Um, so in terms of who makes these recommendations, the recommendations come from the federal government. And we have the office within the federal government that determines how much of a variety of different things that we consume should be consumed. And they put together a document every five years gets updated and it's called the dietary guidelines for Americans. And so the group that's put together is essentially a group of doctors and scientists and professors and people sort of in that nutrition space. And they evaluate the latest findings and they make recommendations based off of the latest scientific findings, the latest health findings related to nutrition. And so 
you know, this can mean that sometimes our vitamin recommendations get changed. So it's been, you know, recommended in the past that people consume more vitamin D because we know that it's important for bone health and heart health and whatnot. Um, but then even things like, you know, with sugar, we get suggested guidelines on how much you should eat. Now, I think it's important to note that although these are experts in the field that are making these guidelines and recommendations, they are just opinions of those experts. And they are things that, again, are meant to be guidelines. So I think that when these guidelines are put forward, they're looking at the entire American population. And the guidelines, to me, for somebody who is, you know, morbidly obese, would be different than the guidelines for my eight-year-old daughter, right? And so someone who's morbidly obese we would want them to just do what they can to bring their sugar down so that it can help them to lose weight and help to improve their health. Whereas I don't want my daughter to end up morbidly obese or having all these health complications. So I don't want her to be, you know, consuming the same amount of sugar that, you know, somebody in that category would be. So I think that there's room for improvement in terms of the recommendations and the guidelines. And I think that they could be stricter. Uh, I think that it is a bit of a political game in the sense that, you know, sugar is pervasive in our society. People don't want to be told that sugar is bad for them and then have a hard time giving it up. That's something that psychologically people aren't going to be attracted to, right? Right. So I think that, you know, thinking through these recommendations and guidelines, I always err to the side of they could be even tighter, and it, it should be less. And um, I think that, you know, many people agree with me, but I think when it comes to, you know, the global message that they're trying to deliver to improve public health, there is a line that they have to be towing because if they are too restrictive, then people just aren't going to bother. Whereas if they seem like a reasonable number, then it's going to be easier to get people on board. Yeah. That's so interesting. It makes me now wonder, you know, the new drugs out for obesity uh, or having, you know, surgery to, you know, remove part of the stomach, gastric surgery. Mm -hmm. Certainly, you know, those might help with weight gain, but they're certainly not addressing the underlying problem. Do people get changes in their health after, you know, let's say you lose 50 pounds or 100 pounds, um, but you're still eating all the sugar? Exactly. I mean, I think that, you know, there's been a few different examples of this. Um, if, if you don't address the underlying cause of why people are overeating, then you're not going to fix the problem. It's a Band-Aid. It's putting yeah. the old phrase, putting lipstick on a pig, right? Where if you just try to, you know, make somebody feel like, oh, look, you lost all this weight. Now you accomplished your goal. Now you're going to be healthy, it doesn't work like that because they have to make the changes. The brain has to change. They have to be able to have the changes that they're making be sustainable. One of the biggest things that to me is so heartbreaking about our diet industry is that it's built around the fact that people are going to fail. And we see this even with gastric bypass surgery. The majority of people who undergo gastric bypass surgery end up regaining the weight. It's called weight recidivism. Yep. And it's heartbreaking because, you know, people feel like they're doing the right thing. But, you know, what we're finding, and we've actually published a paper on this, is that a lot of times people, especially who undergo gastric bypass surgery, 
if they have a food addiction that hasn't been dealt with, they end up having that weight regain because they haven't dealt with the addiction and they haven't dealt with the relationship with food. So I think that, you know, it's obviously in our best interest to have people be a healthy weight, have them get rid of all these diet related health complications. But we do need to look at the approach that we take in order to achieve that because it's not just about losing 50 pounds. Anybody could lose 50 pounds if you told them they had to, but it's about making those sustainable changes, changing the relationship with food, changing the way they think. That's what's going to make them stay healthy and not regain the weight. Great point. What's the estimate of how many people are impacted in sugar? And I'm sure it varies in by um, uh, places in the world that you live, um, by economic factors, et cetera. But, you know, what are the estimates for the impact on sugar? Well, it's an interesting question because in countries like the United States, for example, we find that lower socioeconomic status areas and families are actually more at risk for overeating and eating highly processed foods. And part of this is because many of the individuals in those categories are living in food deserts. Food deserts are regions where there might not be access to healthy groceries. There might be, you know, limited access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And the majority of the foods that are available are going to be highly processed foods. And so it's interesting that we see that people who are in these categories are often the ones that are having difficulty being able to find access to healthy foods. And so when we think about who this touches, I mean, if you look at the population of the United States, 60% of our population is overweight or obese. So the vast majority of us are overweight or obese. And that's independent of socioeconomic status. So I think that this is something that is extremely pervasive and we see it happening, you know, in different geographic regions more often than others. So there are certain states in the United States, like West Virginia, Alabama, Mississippi, that have higher rates of obesity. And these are also the same states that have higher rates of food deserts. And they're also the same states that have higher rates of low socioeconomic status and poor health in general. So I think there are some overlaps here between many different public health issues that are going on. And sugar seems to be another one that's now just being layered on top of it. I agree. So with all, I mean, your great research and others research, yet if you go to a medical doctor, you don't feel well or they find diabetes or whatever, so few people ever get the guidance of really making lifestyle changes. And uh, I know that personally, I've switched almost all of my health care to primary functional uh, medicine, where we're looking beyond just the regular blood work and talking about nutritional. But most of that's out of pocket cost wise. And so it's not affordable for many, many, uh, if you just talk about Americans, much less the rest of the world. So what would it take to get the medical field on board? Uh, I know there's a lot of dollars in advertising from the nutrition and the food companies uh, to come combat that. You know, what's the path to making changes, really? 
Yeah, I mean, it's such an important question, and I don't know the answer. I, I think about this so often because you're right. It is unfortunately the case that when you go to a primary care physician, it is it's almost become like a robot. I hate to say this, but you know, you you don't even really get the eye contact because they're like clicking away at their laptop, making notes. And they weigh you, they, you know, get all this blood work done. And if you did, let's say, you know, weigh a little too much, often the recommendation is, oh, well, why don't you try this weight loss drug? Or, oh, you know, why don't you, you know, your A1C level is is close to borderline. We should probably put you on a, a diabetes medication. I think that it's sad because so much could be done by just changing your lifestyle. And what do you have to lose, right? As a first step, what do you have to lose? If you say, okay, well, let me let me go home and, and make some changes in the way I'm living and see if that reduces my A1C or if that reduces my body weight to a healthier range. And if that doesn't work, then I'll do the medication. But you're not gonna get that kind of support from a regular doctor because that's not what they're trained to do. And I think that that's, that's a disservice to our community, to our society and it's a service to the doctors to be quite honest, because I think that, you know, the structure of medicine lately has become that there's so much pressure on doctors to get these patients in and out that they don't have the time to be able to explain to people, how do you, you know, pick healthier meals? Like, how do you go about doing this? It's not as simple as saying to somebody, just go home and change your lifestyle. Like you have to help people through that. You have to help people to understand what that means and how to do it. And, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I was had surgery for a tumor in my colon. And after the surgery, I became allergic to most foods. And I went to at least five GI docs. Not one of them ever asked what I ate. And um, <laughs> it was awful. And I finally went to a pediatric GI doc that was specialist in celiac. And he basically told me to and this was 20 years ago, it's gotten somewhat better, but he told me to find a support group for the kids that have celiac, even though I'm borderline, I'm not diagnosed with it, and let the other mothers help me figure out what to eat, which was a great recommendation and worked really well. But uh, yeah, that's not how medicine is supposed to, to work in my mind, by all means. Um, can you just comment, you know, the, I've been doing a lot of reading on metabolic dis disorders and, and diseases like Alzheimer's. And there are some people that think that part of there's a group of Alzheimer patients that present almost like uh, type three diabetes, which again, now is a metabolic sugar. Can you just uh, comment on some of these other illnesses like that? Yeah, I think that the type three diabetes example is, is really a great way to talk about this and to introduce that because there is so much new research that's coming out that's showing that a chronic lifetime of consuming excess amounts of sugar, not only can it put us at risk for lots of these other diseases and conditions that we know about, like cardiovascular disease, but it can also put us at risk for things like Alzheimer's disease, which in the past, you know, Alzheimer's disease was kind of viewed as this sort of thing that people would get and we didn't really quite know why and maybe there's a genetic component but now here we're showing here's a dietary component so you can help to reduce your chances of getting Alzheimer's by having a healthy diet 
And I mean, that's something that I think a lot of people are still trying to wrap their mind around, right? Because it just kind of shows how pervasive our diet is when it comes to our health and how important our diet is when it comes to our health. And I think we're seeing this with other things related to our brain health as well, not only Alzheimer's disease, but there's also been a significant amount of research that's been looking at depression and anxiety and it's right. linked to diet and sugar in particular. And, you know, so many people in America, especially young people these days, it breaks my heart because I have young children. And when I hear about, you know, so many people struggling with anxiety and depression and other mood disorders, it breaks my heart because then I see the same group of individuals also eating a diet that's not supporting a healthy mood or, you know, supporting their emotions. And so that's something where I think we could be doing more where, you know, again, we need to think about this from multiple levels. And if people are struggling with their mood, what do you have to lose by changing your diet and seeing how it has an impact? And so much research has now suggested that sugar plays a detrimental role in our brain health and our mental health. So it's definitely something to consider when we're trying to make changes. Thank you for that. And and I think to give our, our listeners just a, a little break in optimism, can you go over some sample snacks and foods and comment also, you know, on the sugar substitutes that, you know, people go, oh, it's a diet food, then I'll drink tons of Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi or whatever. Um, so kind of give some guidance on um, foods that people could go right out and feel fairly safe in what they're eating. Well, I'm glad you asked this because I think it's so important to have that, you know, piece of information about what you can do, right? And in my new book, Sugarless, I tra- I tackled this very, very important question of, you know, what should you be eating or drinking? And I think that when it comes to making these changes, like I said earlier, it's not about, you know, always opting for the sugar-free option, but it might be opting for the thing that has less sugar or it might be opting for the thing that has, you know, some of these non-nutritive sweeteners like monk fruit or stevia that are going to have no calories, but they're still going to give you that little bit of sweetness. So I really think there is a spectrum that people have here when it comes to making choices. So when it comes to beverages, what I recommend is that in an ideal world, you would drink water, you would drink salt-flavored seltzer water because that'll give you some taste if you get sick of just plain old water and it'll give you some bubbles if you want something a little bubbly. If you happen to like soda pop, that's a great swap. Coffee, coffee is great in moderation because if you have too much of it, you get the jitters, but you have to make sure your coffee doesn't morph into a dessert, which is what happens for most people. Most people have their coffee and then they add the creamer and then the the holiday sweetener. And by the time you take a sip, it's literally a dessert. (laughs) And it's worse if you go to a coffee shop. If you go to a coffee shop and get the fancy latte or whatever it is for $12 or whatever it costs, you are literally having dessert. So do not tell yourself you're having coffee. You're having dessert. There's so much sugar in those beverages. (laughs) It's insane. (laughs) So I would say try to do black coffee. Um, If you're, you know, just can't do black coffee, sweeten it with, you don't even need to sweeten it. Maybe add a little bit of milk. If you have to add 
um, creamer or some sort of something to sweeten it up, maybe then opt for one of these sweeteners that is going to have monk fruit or stevia in it. I will say though, if you are using those, it's not the end point. You have to work toward reducing your reliance on sweetness. You should be able to have a beverage that doesn't have to be sweet in order for you to like to drink it. And that's the goal. So I don't want people to think that, oh, I'll just substitute monk fruit for everything for the rest of my life and I'll be fine. Well, that's not going to work because you're not going to break that addiction cycle in your brain. And right. so we have to make sure that we're moving in the direction of reducing our reliance on sweetness, because that's something that I think a lot of people have had a hard time with. Right. And then one thing I'll say when it comes to snacks, you know, whole fruit, eating an apple, eating a banana, eating fruits that have sugar in them naturally, right? If you want sugar, have a piece of fruit. So you're not getting your sugar from candy bars and cookies. You're getting it from fruit because fruit has fiber. It has all these nutrients and it's going to be so much better for you. So I always tell people that when you're opting for a snack, especially if you're feeling like you're craving something, go for something sweet, a piece of fruit, because that's going to reduce your cravings. And it's also going to give you good nutrition at the same time. This is great. And um, I tell you, I could go on and, and learn and ask you more and more questions, but we are running out of time. So I want to make sure that we talk about your new book, Sugarless. Is it officially out yet today? The book is available for pre-order and will be out in stores, available everywhere books are sold and online December 19th. So I'm really excited about it. I definitely recommend anyone who's interested in learning about sugar and how it has a role in health to definitely check it out. It's got a lot of great tips from me with my background in psychology and neuroscience on how to identify sugar, how to get it out of your diet, what are ways in which you could deal with the cravings, how do you deal with holiday parties and social situations. And it also has 30 delicious sugar-free recipes that I developed specifically for the book. So definitely check it out. And it's a really great resource for people, regardless of whether or not you need to lose weight. It's really more about whether or not you want to improve your health. And Sugarless is definitely a resource for that. Well, it's coming out just at the right time. I will be giving your book out to a number of people for their holiday gifts. I thank you very much. Uh, and let our audience know how they can also reach you. You have a great website. And you're, you have presence on Facebook, Instagram. Go ahead and, and we'll have that information on the show notes as well. But uh, let them know how they can reach you. Yeah, so if you want to learn more about the work we're doing in my lab and more about the types of things that I'm working on, you can check out my website at drnicoleavina.com. And you can also find me on Facebook and also on Instagram at drnicoleavina. And definitely feel free to check those places out. Like I said, we're always sharing great tips and tricks and then also interesting news stories about the nutrition space and basically just how to stay healthy and enjoy life. Well, that is great. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap it up today? Well, I think if I can leave with one piece of advice, it's you don't have to do it all in one night, right? It's little baby steps. 
can make huge differences in the long term. And so I think it's so important for people to just do it. Just get out there and do one thing that's going to be beneficial to their health and they're not going to regret it. That is so great. Well, I thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nicole Avina, for for your research, uh, for sharing your knowledge. This has been such an important topic for me. I've I've been on my own personal quest for over 20 years on it, and I see my family, my friends, uh, my patients, and you know, suffering with a lot of healthcare issues. That I believe this is a piece of the problem that isn't being addressed. So uh, I look forward to seeing your book, and I just thank thank you very much for sharing and great learning more about what you're doing. Oh, it's so great to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and to our listeners, thanks for for uh, sharing your time with us, and we'll see you again real soon. Bye bye now. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.